0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from ACAST. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans.
0: Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that definitely hasn't ever had any bad reviews and I would know as I've never ever bothered to check. I mean, why would I check? I haven't had any. Uh, and that's why I won't bother checking see if I've got any because I definitely haven't got any and that's why I won't check. Stop asking questions. I'm Tien and Dewey and as Prime Minister and misused TP of a man, Boris Johnson, has announced his new plan to tackle obesity. I'm not sure it'll work, when it just seems to be making sure nothing he says has any gravitas whatsoever. If you're on a plane from Spain, you'll spend two weeks self-detained. Yes, all travellers returning from any part of Spain must now spend 14 days self-isolating to stop a potential spread of infection, something that based on everyone I know that's been to Magaluf seems like it should have been brought in years ago. Espania's had a spike in coronavirus, which of course means that for safety we can't have people coming back to the UK potentially with an infection that we'll never bother testing them for. It is very welcome of the government to take such quick action, but it's really unexpected. I mean was Foreign Secretary and Massive Blister Dominic Raab visited by three ghosts of science on Friday night. I mean, the usual precautionary Covid procedure from this government would just be to say that this would only be introduced on people returning from holidays in 2022, while insisting that anyone of Spanish origin currently in the country would have to pay an extra £100 to use the NHS. Raab said the government cannot apologise, which I think he meant in terms of their decision on Spain, but it could also have been a deep subconscious scream, breaking free to acknowledge the cabinet's collective psychological imposition. Rob said he understood that this policy would disrupt holidaymakers, but that the UK couldn't risk a second lockdown, even though you'd have thought the government would lap up any chance to blame further economic issues on Europe. Of course, no provisions have been put in place for those that will have to quarantine, but the instructions are that they will be fined if they go to work or school, even though the latter closed for the summer holiday, so technically any kids attending will be unlikely to infect others, and it's possibly a very good idea. The decision was so quick from the government, in fact, and with so little thought to supporting or warning people about it, that many passengers only found out after landing back at a British airport, which is not the sort of baggage you want to collect. Even Transport Minister and what if Robert Webb had witnessed horrific war crimes, Grant Chaps and his family had travelled to Spain on Saturday morning, and so now they have to self-isolate on their return too. While it's absolutely on brand for Grant Shapps to be the sort of transport minister who can't follow an obvious train of events to see where it might end up, I hope that actually he knew all along, because this way he's got at least a month off from having to find yet another shit excuse for something the government have done. Though chances are high we'll see him on BBC Breakfast soon, looking sad by a swimming pool, trying to insist that some likely new policy to cut the free school meals after a week is fine because kids don't need much food as they're only small. I mean, take the Russia report, which was finally released last week, only nine months too late, proving that when it comes to delivering the results of important inquiries, there's absolutely no Russian. <clears throat> what did the long-awaited report find? Well, that there was no Russian interference in the election that anyone knows of because, well, the government didn't make any effort to check for any. You know, a bit like how coronavirus cases are definitely down because no one's really getting tested for it, and in the same way it's not breaking and entering if you just leave the door wide open and don't check to see who walked in, took all your stuff and shat on the floor. In their write-up, the Intelligence and Security Committee said that Russians with very close links to the results of misshapen grapes jelly mould and Russian President Vladimir Putin are now well integrated into British society, with financial links to political parties and what they called reputation laundering. That is uh, so-called because it's when someone who's totally dirty uses a clever cycle of spin to seem like a do-gooder. The report states that Russian interference is the new normal, which must be why Boris Johnson keeps insisting everyone gets used to it. Calls are made for the PM to have an inquiry into the Brexit referendum and potential interference, but this was rejected as Grant Shapps, Transport Secretary only because he's the one they always wheel out for this shit, said there was no evidence of interference. Yes, because no one has looked for any. I do wonder if the government's system of telling the time is simply to look at a bit of paper that has the time written on it, and if questions about what they do when it's not that specific time, they'll say obviously they don't look at the paper. Shaps said that everyone knows that bots exist online and British people are too smart to fall for social media. So hey, more fool idiot PM special advisor and 3D realisation of a decrepit stickman Dominic Cummings, who paid for more than a billion Facebook ads during the referendum campaign. What a stupid, because that totally won't have worked, will it? We're all way too smart to fall for that. Oh, I wish you're selling a blindfold for cats. Amazing. Again, I'm really not sure we can trust the barometer for intelligence of a transport secretary who's just travelled to Spain. On the same day as a Russian report was released, the government tried to skew the news with an announcement that there'd be a pay rise for 900,000 public sector workers. So the potential bonus of more or some Russian meddling is that if it happens often enough, frontline workers might eventually get enough pay rises to balance out 10 years of austerity. Boris Johnson has now been Prime Minister for over a year, even if he only actually turned up to work for about half of that. Funny to think that last July we were all certain he'd be massively shit for Britain but had no idea that 65,000 unnecessary deaths and a horrific recession later that, fair play, he'd really exceed expectations and overachieve. What's your favourite moment of his leadership so far then? Was it when he boasted about shaking everyone's hands and then caught coronavirus? That was a good one. Was it when he hid in a fridge or was replaced with a block of ice for a TV debate and his dad turned up instead? Maybe it was lying about having a Brexit deal ready or not being able to make a cup of tea or not wanting to give children meals until a footballer campaigned about it. Or maybe it was when he unlawfully prorogued Parliament and lied to the Queen or possibly when he pocketed a journalist's phone. Nice, so hard when there's been so, so much. And in fact, the Prime Minister himself took to social media to fire off as many of his government achievements in the past year as possible in under two minutes. His list included things such as building 40 hospitals, which they haven't done and won't be doing, and getting Brexit done, which they haven't really, they've just sort of left it to expire. But that is what's expected from someone who's probably never lasted two minutes in his life without finishing early and lying for the remainder. And actually, listing all your government's achievements for the past year in under two minutes was actually something that New Zealand Prime Minister, aka a proper Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, came up with. So much like the Brexit deal, uh, Boris Johnson just took something from a woman and refused to give her credit again. But ha, more fool him anyway. The British people are far too smart to fall for social media. In an interview with the BBC about his year of PM-ness, Johnson said that in terms of the coronavirus, they could have done things differently, which is the sort of answer a football manager gives when their team loses, not someone who's let a lot of people die because you kept scoring own goals. The PM said that they didn't understand the virus for the first few weeks or months, and there are lessons to be learned, but judging by how little he listened to the science or info he was given since January, it's unlikely he'll learn from any of them or even bother to attend class in the first place. Now in his second year, Johnson is pushing a campaign to tackle obesity, where the main drive appears to be to ban deals on unhealthy food, just a week after the Chancellor and Compare the Market mascot, Rishi Sunak, announced that everyone would get money off going to fast food restaurants in August. Is it a mixed message, or does the Chancellor know that most of the establishments taking up the deal have really low hygiene ratings, so the chances of losing weight through food poisoning are very, very high? Aside from telling people not to do the things they were telling them to do last week, the Boris diet seems largely about making sure unhealthy food costs more while not reducing the costs of healthy food, or buying back school playing fields, or maybe voting to make sure Parliament gets scrutiny of trade deals meaning the health service would be spared being sold to US businesses. But no, they can't do any of that, so instead you just won't see any adverts on TV for fast food before 9pm, assuming people still watch TV that is, and are most likely to be influenced by seeing a Mackie D's advert during Homes Under the Hammer. And calories will be written on alcoholic drinks as though you'll be able to read them once you've had several anyway and GPs will be able to tell people to use apps, because I'm sure exercising your thumbs playing on your phone will burn a ton of cows. Health secretary, a man who definitely carries around his school swimming certificates just in case, Matt Hancock, went exercising with the sun, something that will take ages as that paper is full of demons. Pictures of him doing press-ups were very useful though in that his leering 5-Ed looking at the camera should scare children into running for miles and miles. Hancock said that it would save the NHS a lot of money if everyone who's overweight lost 5 pounds. So the good news is that the recession is going to cost each British family around 9,000 quid, so the health service should be fine. Earlier in the week, Hancock was asked why he said that lockdown happened days earlier than it did, and he replied that the idea of lockdown as a date is actually wrong, as what happens epidemiologically is the behaviour of people, and you saw everyone going around their business less and less. Yes, you see, lockdown wasn't a thing that the government had to announce, but instead it was a vibe, a culture, an atmosphere, a state of mind, and maybe the real lockdown was in our hearts all along as we were told to stay at home for weeks, and maybe it was all the friends we didn't meet along the way. The PM visited Scotland to try and show the merits of the union, forgetting that its main merits are how Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland are the flotation aids that stop England from sinking under its own exceptionalism. Johnson said that the response to the coronavirus pandemic shows the might of the UK, which is rich considering how low the death and infection rates for Scotland and Wales were compared to England, thanks to the devolved governments being able to ignore anything the PM did. First Minister, and throwback to the era when politicians could talk properly even if they were shit, Nicola Sturgeon, said that Johnson's visit highlighted the argument for Scottish independence, probably not least because then they could close the border and not let him in again. Recent opinion polls have shown rising support for Scottish independence, and who can blame them when they're now the Canada to our America living above a veritable plague zone? I'm honestly amazed that the SNP's economy recovery plan isn't just to hire everyone who is made unemployed to start building a wall under Gretna Green. Why wouldn't Scotland want to embrace Johnson's leadership when he's just asked the army to prepare for a four-way disaster of coronavirus resurgence, the flu, flooding and Brexit disruption this winter, in the way that in a zombie film the governor or mayor would not want to stop the spreading of the infected, just make sure there are enough weapons that none of them got near him? The UK has abandoned hopes of a US trade deal by the end of the year, probably because it will take quite a while to gift wrap the NHS, and it still looks like a deal with the EU is some way off. Still, I suppose one classic way to tackle obesity is just to make sure there's not enough food or medicine for everyone. Who knows, it's very likely that actually the government will announce that obesity in the UK has been completely wiped out on account of them not checking anyone's weight for a year, while in reality everyone's quarantined for going on the holidays they're encouraged to, putting on weight while scrolling through social media adverts by Russian bots that they're far too clever to get tricked by. Then again, maybe we'll all be fine, or at least no one will check if we aren't, and that's all that matters. In other news, Home Secretary and woman made entirely of the sound when you accidentally scrape your car, Pretty Patel, is doing a review of the hostile environment policy, promising a more compassionate and people-first approach to immigration, which I assume means those are the two things she will deport to somewhere else. A possible plan to save social care involves the over-40s paying more tax in what some might call the isn't-that-national-insurance-though policy, and Conservative MP and toe Rob Roberts is facing allegations of inappropriate behaviour after he asked a 21-year-old intern to fool around with him the party haven't removed the whip from him, possibly because fooling around in 2020 could well be interpreted to mean writing government policy. The Labour Party took decisive action in the wake of the Russia report to show that the only people interfering with their election chances are themselves. The party agreed to pay a large sum in damages to former employees for comments made against them about their appearance on an episode of BBC's Panorama last year focusing on anti-Semitism in the party. Labour Party leader and personification of a reunion tour no one asked for, Keir Starmer, has always, always said that he'd draw a line under all anti-Semitism in the party so the payout is kind of expected. But former leader and psyllium husk, Jeremy Corbyn, said that the party's legal advice said they had a strong defence against doing that and the decision was political, not legal. Now Jeremy Corbyn may face legal actions against him and actually the Labour Party is going to face an awful lot more cases about anti-Semitism against them all of which could cause a cash crisis. But hey, I say, what better way to make sure Labour definitely stand up for the rights of those in poverty but if the party are in poverty too. I mean, who knows, it might be the first time that Starmer's Labour is actually representative of most of the country. One of those who got one of the payouts was former head of compliance at Labour and champion of having a beard that looks like it's holding his hair on, Sam Matthews, and there are several accounts that during his time in the party he ignored cases of anti-semitism before then saying the party had a problem with it on TV. It's a real shame he's no longer in Labour, as with skills like that he'd be able to perfectly advise what the Conservatives might do and blame someone else for next. There will be new penalties for MPs who have been found to break the official code of conduct, which may involve being banned from foreign trips or taking anger management classes, though unfortunately there's nothing about them being stopped from becoming Home or Education Secretary. Labour MP and soap star that's been invited to do a challenge for charity that she's not going to manage, Rosie Duffield, wants to tighten restrictions on the sale of laughter gas because its use has become more prevalent during the pandemic. Yeah, I mean because it's becoming increasingly hard to find things to laugh about otherwise. Give us a break, Rosie. And lastly, the Welsh Lib Dems will get a say on whether their next leader is stock photo of someone who puts things in the wrong bins, Ed Davey, or star of Bob's Burgers, Layla Moran. Because let's face it, if they don't get everyone involved, then Ed and Layla would just vote for themselves and it'd be a tie. And no one wants that, as you know what the Lib Dems are like with coalitions. Yo 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 parpole broads. How are you on this fine? Oh no wait, let me look out the window. Oh, oh well, I just hope you're good. I'm recording this mere hours after an accidental sneeze while trimming my beard meant that I also had to cut my hair. Uh, Yes, it's very much one of those days. I've largely been avoiding social media for several days. Um, It's been lovely. Uh, But it sort of meant that I missed Wiley saying lots of terrible racist things and then people like Zach Goldsmith, who also ran a very racist mayoral campaign, saying that Wiley was the worst racist and then Priti Patel accusing Twitter of not removing hateful content, which sort of misunderstands that that's why she's still on there and then everyone had some sort of big racist off, which I don't think really helps anyone. I was musing over all the stories about the Pentagon maybe making some of its UFO findings public, and imagining just how great it would be if there were aliens, because then we might finally unite as a planet to be racist to them instead. Oh, we can only hope. Anyway, uh, yeah, so I've sort of been avoiding social media. It's been lovely. I was too busy doing childcare um, to notice very much, and instead I've been watching as my daughter saw there was a fly in our flat and she insisted that every time it flew off it was playing hide and seek with her, so she just counted to ten and then tried to find it. it. Lasted for hours. I'm starting to wonder if she really needs more contact with other kids but at the same time i've realized that not putting the bins out is cheaper than paying for nursery so you know swings and roundabouts I also had a really lovely chat last night with a designer called Rebecca Carr, um, and our chat was recorded. It will be online soonish as part of a number of chats she's having. Um, and Rebecca is working with other artists in York on ways to do all the things the government have no intention of doing, um, such as actually sustainable, affordable homes, uh, sharing initiatives, self-staining um, self staining communities, self sustaining, not self staining communities. That sounds awful, although I'd definitely be accepted really, really quickly. But anyway, I mean, all the sort of utopian goodness that has nothing stain related whatsoever. Um, one of the many things uh, that her and her pals are working on, though, is called OP House, OP House, and you can find it at ophouse.co.uk, where they are enlisting and enabling people who want to build and design their own small eco friendly home as part of a community. And oh my, it just looks lovely. It looks so lovely. I mean my fear is that if I was part of it I know I'd mess up the design and I'd build this lovely looking place from the outside move in and realise it has no toilet or I'd have to sleep in a cupboard or something and that's exactly what would happen but it's very nice to know that people are being positive about how to survive the next few years slash decades um, and check out Rebecca's page at uh, Kaizen Arts Agency that's K-A-I-Z-E-N artsagency.org uh, for more info on all she's doing um, including the circus which sounds very exciting a sort of universal sharing project um, and if you live in or near York please do so Sign up and help out. Um, That's the sort of nice thing I want to talk to people about when this podcast uh, returns in September. I'm going to try and find some people that have got positive, good ideas of how on earth we deal with this shit. Um, Yes, this is the last one of these podcasts now for at least a month, I think. I mean, look, hey, we all know I might have to do a small update at some point, but I'm going to try... And have a few weeks at least doing some other writing, looking for some actual work that pays money, and possibly even sleep if that's ever an option. And generally work out how to survive in a post-live comedy world. There are actually some gigs happening now. Um, they're sort of all outdoors, so you know, you know, you never know. You might see me shouting in someone's garden over August, but I probably won't be being paid, and I may not even have been invited. And someone may have called the police. So. Anyway, so I hope you enjoyed uh, this episode before the break. Thank you for listening to it. Big tar as well to Helen, Ruby, Claire, C, uh, all of who donated to the Kofi. And to somebody, um, that's because they put anonymous as their name, um, who donated a... Well, substantial amount of the coffee, and I honestly can't tell you how appreciated that is right now. Um, Really, really appreciated. I mean, it would have been appreciated at any time, but previously I'd have said it was really appreciated, then I might have carelessly bought a lot of crisps and coffee with it, but now it's appreciated in a way that means I can use it to actually pay bills and maybe one or two packs of crisps. So thank you very, very, very much to you. Um Thank you also to Roz for joining the Patreon, which is appreciated, and of course if any of you fancy helping me out um, you can do that at ko-fi.com forward slash Bro or patreon.com forward slash Bro two. and as a reward for your kindness I will give you an insubstantial thanks on a podcast at some point in September I know right what an incentive I bet you're just rushing to those websites right now um, you can of course also give the show a review on any of them podcast apps and I mean you'll have like four weeks to think of what to write so why not give it a go or even just make sure all your pals and fans are subscribed and ready for them when this returns in September and I find a way to make jokes about you <laughs> everything absolutely still being terrible which it probably will be um and that is it for this week's admin bit uh pretty much nothing to tell you about as nothing is happening oh uh, apart from my brother aka the last skeptic whose music i steal for this show has another single out as part of a new ep he's releasing soon um and the ep is called nice while it lasted you can pre-order that on all the music apps um and the new single is called smoking area uh go and listen to them on loop till your ears bleed thank you uh, or if you don't like his music just put your music player on mute and then listen to it on loop uh, just hit play on loop and he'll still get hits and he won't really care what you think probably i mean i haven't asked him but it's what i do with this podcast So i'm sure he feels the same uh so yeah that's it for like um this podcast is it for a month and you know over that time get in touch if there's ways that this can improve things that i need to change up and do better when it comes back things that you want to hear about when we return god knows what we're going to need in september but um Let me know. Right, that is actually it. But before I check out for the summer or whatever it is you call this grey rainy bit, that's just a little bit lighter than the other grey rainy bit, on this week's show I'm talking to Nick Pettigrew about his new book on his time as an antisocial behaviour officer. And in between that, there's a very quick look at the Russia report and how it's what's not in it that's important. That's the sort of line I'd like to do if I hosted like a proper investigative podcast. That right there in an American accent with like a blinky plonky soundtrack and weird unnecessary questions all the time. Like, how it's not what's in it that's important. Or is it? I' ain't here to do yet, but am I really or is that what really matters, etc, cetera, etc? Cetera. I mean this show is really only half the podcast that it should be, isn't it? Is't it <laughs> You might know antisocial behaviour as just what you're subjected to every time you go online. But back in the late 90s and early noughties, it was just a big old politics term. The Prime Minister and always troubled Jackal, Tony Blair, did a big speech about how he'd be tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime. Though, if he tackled the causes first, then he wouldn't have had to worry so much about the crime bit as it wouldn't have happened. Idiot. Be, like, proactive rather than reactive. Jesus. So, then came the Crime and Disorder Act and Antisocial Behaviour Orders, or ASBOs, to be used against people who'd been shown to have conducted actions that cause harm or a lack of consideration against others. But despite that description, for some reason, it didn't include needlessly bombing people in Iraq. Basically, it's the sort of vague stuff where you know someone's being a dick, but it's not going to make a decent true crime podcast unless audiences have a real keen interest on just who wrote that Dave can fuck off on the bus stop and which Dave do they mean and why. I, Susan Earwig, will take you on this journey of twist turns, a permanent marker and a friendship ruined by not sharing crisps in Woodbrook Hillstop D coming soon. Sorry, sorry, back on track. Asbos then became criminal behaviour orders under the Conservatives in 2014, whereby lots of people were charged for doing things Michael Gove gets up to on a typical weekend. The people who dealt with these issues... Anti-social behaviour officers, a tough and often thankless job, dealing with the bits other emergency services can't and government services have neglected in ways that were far more antisocial and shouldn't have happened if anyone had really actually wanted to be tough on the causes of crime. So this week I spoke to Nick Pettigrew, who is, as of last week, a published author with his book Antisocial, a very darkly funny, very moving um, diary about his 15 years as an antisocial behaviour officer. Um, The book is an often stark and very honest account of social inequality, courtroom processes and a myriad of issues that he had to deal with on a daily basis um, while tackling his own mental health issues doing such an incredibly stressful job. He's had a bevy of lovely interviews and I really, really enjoyed the book. Um, Nick is very funny and, and in ways that you don't expect it. In He's talking about some really, really miserable things and still manages to make you laugh throughout. Um, and it was lovely to speak to him all about just what an antisocial behaviour officer does, why he wanted to write about his experiences and the changes he saw in the areas of society he worked with over the 15 years that he did it. I hope you enjoy. Here is Nick. Hi, Nick. Um, all right. I, I, re- I revealed to you before we started recording that I haven't, I've, I've read about a chapter and a bit of your book so far. I'm absolutely loving it. Um, it is very funny. It's quite upsetting. It's brilliant social commentary. Um, and it, it's called Antisocial. And it's your memoirs about your 15 years working as an antisocial behaviour officer, not 18 years like they put in The Guardian. Um, 15 years. Um and I, I just wonder if you could sort of explain to listeners really what an anti-social behaviour officer is, because I think unless someone's had to come across one in their lives, it's not really a role that most people know about. And I know you describe it very brilliantly in your book, but if you could sort of summarise for us, that'd be fantastic.
3: No, absolutely. I mean, I, <clears throat> I think I say in the book, if you're speaking to me, something's gone wrong in your life <laughs> to some degree. Um, essentially, the, the way we'll describe it is If uh, your neighbour upstairs keeps playing loud music at three in the morning or the neighbour to the left keeps shouting rude words at you or the neighbour below is dealing crack and waving a machete around, if you can't move, if the police can't do anything about it and if you're at the end of your tether, at the end of the tether is a card with my number on it basically. So um, it was social housing, if you live in social housing, if you're having these problems, then I would be the person that would speak to you and find out what's going on and then see what we could do to help.
0: You're sort of the last resort.
3: Um, in, in many cases yeah I mean I think uh, I mentioned in antisocial that a lot of the time the job is, is when it falls through the cracks, when it's not serious enough for social services to intervene, when it's not bad enough for the police to take serious action uh, when somebody's mental health is not doing well but not to the point where uh, mental health services can intervene so often it was when a lot of things were sort of going wrong but the the other services through just lack of resources or or just an inability to to deal with it that they weren't the people to call so it would be us
0: and did you have Legal powers then because sort of uh, in in reading uh some of your book that I've read obviously there are times where you've had to work with the police and you've had to work with those other services, but does that mean that in your role you have legal powers, or are you more sort of like a peacekeeper kind of keeping <laughs> things going until until the other powers need to intervene uh
3: no, no it wasn't quite that I wasn't sort of a United Nations with a white helmet. it was more <laughs> what we had was uh with the authorities devolved powers. There was civil action that we could take as ASB officers, as antisocial behaviour officers. So there were things like injunctions, so that's a court order that says you will not do X, Y and Z. And and I talk about it in the book Antisocial about you have to be very inventive with the injunctions, how it's worded, because somebody will always find a way of getting around it and, and sort of finding a loophole. So there would be things like injunctions where you, you're a court order telling people not to do things. There were things like premises closure orders, where you could, and and again, it's just really specifically worded. A premises closure order is where you can close down any specific area that can be defined, and that means nobody can go in it. So if it was a crack house, you could close the crack house down. If it was a stairwell, you could stop people from using the stairwell. And some authorities have even used it to close down phone boxes. Because I don't know if you remember, phone boxes, you used to be able to walk into them and make phone calls. Nowadays, they're only used for peeing and taking drugs in. So so those are the kind of sort of legal powers that we have. But I I didn't have a badge and I couldn't kick through a door and, and say freeze or anything like that. (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, it's a shame it's a shame in some of the situations i've read about already in your book i sort of feel like you could have done with them uh might have made things slightly easier um it's i mean it, it you you end up in a, dealing with quite a lot of scenarios uh or you, you did end up dealing with quite a lot of scenarios uh in the role uh, and it just sounds like an incredibly um taxing job emotionally um uh, particularly i think what kept you doing it for 15 years um You've got to really want to do it. Did it? Did it was it was it quite rewarding when you, you managed to get things right?
3: Yeah, it's one of those jobs. Um, if you speak to a, a, an antisocial behaviour officer, a bit like, I mean, I have relatives who are accident and emergency nurses. I've got relatives who have worked in care homes and stuff like that. It's a job you either do for six weeks uh, or you do for years. Because it's a job you either go, oh no, not for me, or you find something rewarding in it, which which obviously I did for for doing it for as long as I did, um, and that's why you do it. I mean, I think I, I have a, an exceptionally low boredom threshold uh, generally, <laughs> and l- genuinely, I can say in fifteen years I didn't have two days the same. Um, you, you know, you would you would turn up in work with. plan of what you were going to do for the day, and people you were going to call and paperwork you were going to do and literally and this would this would be an almost weekly occurrence. You'd walk in and you'd be told somebody's breached their injunction, they've been arrested, they've been taken to court, you need to grab all the papers together and get to court to to be on the side of the person who's applied for injunction. So you know there'd be times where you'd have to drop everything uh, or if there was a crisis in a in a particular estate or a block you be very hands-on. Um, you know, you had to not be scared of situations, I think. Um, there were times when there were rough sleepers in, in our properties and, you know, you hope that they're not going to be aggressive or violent or have anything on them or anything like that, but you don't know that. And you, you could wait for the police to turn up, which could be hours, if at all. Or you just roll your sleeves up and get off away from your desk, leave the office and, and go there yourself and, and speak to them. Um, so it was a very hands-on thing. So it was rewarding. It was rewarding. There was there, there were times, and it sounds melodramatic, but there were a few occasions when I came home and thought, if I wasn't at work today, that person would have died. So when you have stuff like that, that does keep you going. You do have wins that you have throughout the job, definitely.
0: Yeah, I mean it's incredibly admirable. I, I uh, both my parents were child protection social workers, and i spent spent uh, well, I've spent my lifetime going. I have no idea how you did any of that with everything they do. No, no, absolutely. No. I mean, that's a job I couldn't do. Absolutely. You know, that's that's
3: equally challenging. I, I couldn't do the job that they do
0: but it's but what you do is is similar you are dealing with very difficult situations with other people and i think that like the closest i ever had i worked in a, a community housing association i worked on the building repairs line where at 24 mm-hmm. like every single day for hours people would shout at me for things that are broken in, in their social housing and then we'd send out builders who weren't very good at their job to fix it and it would be broken within 24 <laughs> hours and then i'd get shouted at all over again and i lasted a year and uh, it it broke me it absolutely broke me just having to deal with so, you know, I think um, there, there was both, uh, you know, you feel like you're being berated all the time, but also an understanding that these people are in a really shit situation. They don't want to be in. They, you know, they don't deserve to be in. Um, and yeah. you're not helping it. Well, I wasn't. <laughs> My, I definitely wasn't. I was useless. Um, but, you know, I think that's, that's a quite hard. It's it's quite hard to be able to balance all those feelings that you have yourself in, in terms of, um you know, your, your own ideas of social justice, but also doing the job that you need to do.
3: Well, I um I started, my, my first job in housing was in a call centre, taking phone calls and, and f- for anything, rent repairs like you did as well. And I remember it, it taught me a lesson about people's priorities. It was very early on in the job. And this was a while ago, as you'll, you'll soon find out. Um, I was at work the day. The September 11th attacks happened. And, you know, I was on the phone taking calls. I could see people going away to the break room to to look at the television. And so I took a break and saw the, you know, the awful footage and so on. Um, But we had a job to do. So we had to go back to work, go back on the phones. And one of the first phone calls I took was from somebody absolutely furious that, um, they, I think it was their sink was leaking slightly and they'd had to wait a couple of days and nobody had been out yet. And I could hear the news footage in the background. This person knew that America was under attack, but to them that wasn't important. What was important was there was a leak in their sink and it had been two days and it hadn't been fixed yet.
0: Wow. But but, I mean, I think that's, you know, there's a that (laughs) sort of understanding uh, needs to come into a lot of our politics. You know, for example, being on Twitter, as, as you and I are, Brexit, for example, everyone was up in arms about it, but there are a lot of people that were more angry that they're living somewhere shit and they can't get a job. And, you know, the, the kind of immediate issues in life rather than the kind of big political issues that we see
2: hmm.
0: on the news. And I, I wondered if, you know, you did that job over 15 years, so started in 2005, is that right? My maths is terrible.
2: Uh, right, sure. so, again, yeah. Did yeah, you, yeah.
0: <laughs> Did the job get harder as austerity kicked in? Did you notice a sort of visible change from 2010... Onwards, as other um, public services uh, lost funding.
3: No, absolutely. the the uh, it, the job changed radically uh, in in the time that I did it. I think, in terms of my sort of political standpoints and 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 so on, what I found was it didn't change them, but I think there are there are points at which I probably depart from my friends who share similar outlooks I mean one of them for instance is um and it's obviously a big topic at the moment but it's about the police and you know there are calls to defund the police and I understand completely why that is but what I did see over the course of of certainly the last 10 years was community policing completely disappearing that was one of the most heavily hit of the twenty thousand officers that have been lost and that is a massive part of keeping communities ticking over, because what happens is with, I mean, I'm just using this as an example, but as one of the the bites of austerity is, 10 years ago, you would have half a dozen safer neighbourhood police officers working on an estate, and they knew all the families, they knew all the kids to say hello to, they knew when a strange uh, car was parked in a certain area, or if they hadn't seen somebody for a few days. So there were all those... Links and information and input that was just eroded by austerity. That just went. What happened was the only time police went onto those estates were response calls. So it'd be if somebody's called line or if it's a response car driving around. And, and the policing attitude with those officers is more of soldiers who have occupied a country. So they view everybody potentially as the enemy. And that completely changes the dynamic of, of the policing. So I mean, that's just one example of, of what austerity did. But just generally, what I would say is, I mean, I grew up quite poor, um, but there was a level of poverty you couldn't drop below because the safety net was there and it existed. And, and I, I would say it was very difficult, if not impossible, to fall below a certain level of deprivation. That's not true now. The, the, the safety net isn't there anymore. Um, so there there isn't a, a bottom to how far you can fall. Um, So, yeah, so if society is like a trapeze artist walking across the wire, we're doing it uh, without realizing there's no net below us and we only find out when we fall off.
2: Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: And we'll be back with Nick in a minute, but first... Just before we all go on our staycations or stay on our go-cations or whatever it is that means we'll be staring aimlessly out of the window saying loudly, well, it's another fucking day, you're probably aware that the Russia report came out last week. Yes, it sounds like a sequel to the French Connection, and often the very notion of Russians getting up to secret mischief feels like we've been sick back to the 80s, which we haven't because otherwise, well, I'm just going to... She's going to vomit in my mouth as I say "Oh, We'd have had a competent Prime Minister. Ugh, I'm sorry. I didn't say she wasn't an evil Prime Minister, but Margaret Thatcher could at least construct a sentence without sounding like a dog putting its head out of the window of a speeding car. That's where we are now, people. I almost gave a compliment to Margaret Thatcher. Ugh, oh, That's where we are. Fucked. So, so fucked. So, this week, why would you enjoy your life when instead you could find out more about just what the Russia report said, and I thought I'd help you ruin some moments of your post-Spain quarantine by trying my best to break it down like a tired intestine with a particularly indigestible dinner. So, the long-awaited report into Russian interference in the UK was released last week by the Intelligence and Security Committee, and I'm not saying the Russians are the best at spy stuff, but the report said the government hadn't even bothered to investigate any potential disruption. Why would you if it's going to be too tricky to find? I mean, you may as well sit on your bum and pretend not to see that man dressed in camo gear pressed up against the wall. It'll just make your life more difficult. The key findings, or not findings, of the report were that chums of Putin are very well integrated into British society through financial ties to parties, peers, charities, academia, and the legal profession, amongst others. This has been known for a while, and earlier this year it was reported that the biggest female political donor in UK history is Lubov Chenutkin, a Moscow connected financier who's given more than £1.6 million to the Conservative Party. And in the worst ways, too, I mean, she paid £35,000 to sit next to Education Secretary and face like an open drawer, Gavin Williamson at a fundraiser. Why? Why would anyone willingly want to do that? I'd pay more to not sit next to him. How badly did she need to sleep? In 2014, she paid £160,000 to play tennis with then London Mayor Boris Johnson. Again, why? Of all the people you'd want to play tennis against, you'd choose a man who always goes over the line and can't control his balls. Fucking hell. Chinookin is one of many examples, and the Conservatives are one of a number of beneficiaries among PR firms, academia and cultural institutions that have benefited from uh, Russian money, something the report says is a reputation laundering process, which is where someone appears to do good publicly in order to offset a negative image. And I mean, that's the only reason I do anything nice, isn't it? If none of you are watching, I'd totally go outside now and shout Victorian slurs at old ladies. Oi! Hornswoggler! Gibface! Jollocks! Yeah you! Jollocks. There's been £20 billion of money via Russian oligarchs and financiers that have come into the UK, mostly London, and then they've been donated around the shop, just sadly not to me. The reputation laundering is all part of a larger thing, with hackings, assassinations on UK soil, do you remember Litvinenko who's poisoning put a lot of people off sushi for all of five minutes, or that time Salisbury got actually interesting? And of course there are campaigns of disinformation during elections and referendums. Why would any Russians need to do that in the UK when our politicians are fully capable of disinformation all by themselves? Well, that's a good question. And a big part of the report is about how actually the UK government not seen or sought advice of successful interference in the UK democratic processes or any activity that has had a material impact on the election. Yeah, they didn't even bother. I mean, that's not a good look either way, is it? I mean, either they didn't investigate it because the government knew it'd bring up a whole ton of bad times news all about them and that could derail all their plans to derail things, which may then actually, as a result, rerail things until Grant Shapps took a look at them and they went wrong again. Or they were just clueless and they didn't actually do half the security measures that they should, especially as a government who promised to protect British sovereignty and all those other headline-filling-empty-shit words. It is genuinely hard to know which it is. I mean... It's highly likely, from a Prime Minister who shook hands till he caught Covid, like the world's worst banzai challenge, that he's just cocked this up. That his predecessor before him, who had all the social skills of a hurricane-destroyed shed, couldn't see anything past deporting British citizens and her own red lines. And her predecessor before her left his own daughter in a pub and fucked a pig. Probably. Definitely. So yes, it's possible that they're just fuckwits. But while the possibility that this is all intentional sounds like a proper tinfoil hat wearer annual TinFest convention, pop a few of these together. This report was submitted in full on October 17th last year to Boris Johnson, who then said that blocking the publication of the report before an election was standard procedure and it could take at least six weeks to release it. Then Chair of the ISC and Roadrunner's sad uncle, Dominic Grieve, said actually this wasn't normal procedure at all, it was totally invented and the report could have been released within an hour of submitting it. Johnson then held back the report through the election that the report could have helped ensure there was no interference during and then said it had to wait until a new ISC committee was formed after the election. This com- he took ages to sort out and the government tried to parachute in Jonah of the Commons Chris Grayling to be the chair, which didn't work because everything he does fails, and then took the whip off Julian Lewis for getting the job instead. Then when they found out it was going to be released, Dominic Raab was all over the news with his head looking like it was going to pop like a giant spot, screaming that actually Russia leaked government US trade documents and gave them to Labour, which actually Labour got from Reddit as they'd been there for months. I'm just saying, if the government really didn't care about this report, you'd think they'd have made less of an effort to stop people seeing it. It's very much like insisting you don't want to go to the party anyway, as the host finds you trying to climb into their upstairs window disguised as one of their guests. Then you have, and look, I tried to write new descriptions of this man, but some time ago I called him a human pedal bin and I'll never best that, human pedal bin Aaron Banks threatening to sue the ISC if they release that report, which makes him look as guilty as sin embossed with diamonds from a mine that may or may not have been used as a cover for Russian money laundering. Dominic Cummings spent three years in Russia from 1994 to 1997, and while it's possible he was just researching exactly how best to be a Rasputin tribute act, he also had close ties with a Russian diplomat who in later years established conservative Friends of Russia and had close links to vote Leave before being expelled from the UK. And then there's current Housing Secretary and Human Palmyra, Robert Jenricks, who has lots of close connections to very Kremlin-friendly oligarchs. I mean, also, of course he would. He's friends with Richard Desmond too. He's one of those people where you're just glad that he's friends with other shit houses, as that way, there's absolutely no chance that you'd ever have to be friends with him. That is just a tiny weeny amount of all the connections that I have time to mention, or can wrap my head around the complicated web of who knows who, worse than the German time travelling series Dark. The report proposed a number of things that the government need to do, with one being an investigation into whether there was foreign interference in the 2016 Brexit referendum, which Johnson immediately rejected, you know, in the way you totally would if it didn't stress or bother you whatsoever. There's no need for it apparently, as there's no evidence there was any, like there wouldn't be if no one looked for it or did an investigation. God, he'd be the world's laziest detective, refusing to take a case because as he hadn't looked into it, it's clear nothing happened. The rest of the recommendations are for new powers to allow the sanction or confiscation of oligarchs' wealth that is found to have been used in serious crime. It's recommended that lobbyists who work for other governments have to officially register themselves, which is like the political spy equivalent of when in an airport they ask if you're carrying dangerous items and they're just hoping a terrorist will be honest. They also want the Official Secrets Act strengthened and for House of Lords members to disclose more of their activities. And will any of that happen? Well, Priti Patel said the report was out of date, which I mean, yes it was because her boss delayed it by nine months. But she insisted that the government's position in tackling foreign interference was stronger now and that she will be proposing new laws to tackle it. Though I'm sure none of that will be to deal with anyone who has money and will mainly involve traps to catch refugees in boats, while Patel insists they're coming over to steal the elections. Boris Johnson said the donation system doesn't need changing and that donations from foreign citizens are illegal, even though 14 cabinet ministers and members of the Intelligence and Security Committee have received donations from people linked to the Russian government. And look, this could all be absolutely nothing And it does feel nice to be able to point fingers elsewhere And say, maybe it's not entirely our government And our society being xenophobic shit rags Easily swayed by three word slogans Which I mean, it is, it it definitely is But maybe, just maybe, it's also All to do with that there Putin With his face like someone poked tiny eyes into a gooseberry As Theresa May used to shout About her snoopers charter If you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to fear And no, it doesn't really count If you won't check any of the hiding places just in case If you fancy the headfuck that is properly looking into all of this, uh, check out Byline Times, Open Democracy's investigation into Dark Money and Carol Cadwallader for The Guardian, and play the music from the man from UNCLE or something while you do it for added effect. And now, back to Nick. I remember sort of, uh, I think it was Philip Hammond saying about a year ago, oh, you know, there isn't uh, poverty because I haven't seen it. And I sort of thought, but well, you wouldn't. You wouldn't see it in anything No, you no, do. no. You know, it's often <laughs> hidden away. And, and it, again, my, my only minimum experience, but I remember working at the Housing Association, seeing whole areas of, of sort of uh, Camden where I was that I hadn't known were there. Uh, I was very ignorant to them. Um, and seeing how uh, how people were living and going, oh, my God, I had no idea this was sort of round the corner from, uh, yeah. from where I was.
3: Well, well, that kind of outlook sort of affected the job as well, because when we would go to court um, to, for instance, get an injunction, somebody's been a bother to their neighbours, an awful lot, and I talk about it in Antisocial, an awful lot of the judiciary or magistrates are plucked from a certain section of society, shall we say. So when you're in court talking about your neighbours, now in their heads, my neighbour is the person a quarter of a mile away, over a fence, or <laughs> you know what I mean, the the other side of the road in a detached mews or something like that. So, what they can't or they struggle to imagine is what it's like to live cheek by jowl in a council estate in a tower block where you're, you know, you're right up against other people, and and when people's behaviour sort of goes off the rails, that makes a massive difference as opposed to if your neighbour you know, at the other end of your massive gone. So so I saw that, you know, that inability to understand what poverty is like, what austerity is like. I saw that in the job as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, it makes such a, representation makes such a massive difference So people don't understand it until they've seen the people that aren't being represented or, or haven't been represented themselves. Um, I, w- I wanted to sort of talk about it, because antisocial behaviour, I remember, was a, was a Tony Blair term, and I sort of remember that whole tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime speech that he did, uh, I think it was at ninety. Mm-hmm. 90- 98, I think was that was that speech. But, you know, is is that kind of view still needed? I, I don't mean to demean the 15 years of your life, Nick, but your, your job, which was mm-hmm. very important, do you feel like actually we need antisocial behaviour officers or is it that we're, you know, it's sort of putting a sticking plaster over wounds in other areas of society? You know, do, do you feel like, are we very behind on the way that we think of dealing with what are termed antisocial behaviours? Well, I mean... It,
3: The way we deal with antisocial behaviour has has changed massively since I started doing the job. When I started doing the job, it was very top-down, enforcement-heavy, looking at sort of taking people to court, evicting people, that kind of thing. Um, By the time I'd finished doing the job, it was very much about, well, what support's out there? What issues are they going through? Um, I mean, I often say that most, well, a lot, 80% of antisocial behaviour, It's a smoke alarm. It's not the fire, it's a smoke alarm. It's an indication of something that's going on. And most of the antisocial behaviour I dealt with was people who were having a crisis, either personal or addiction or mental health or, you know, a, a social care not being met. So that's what I mean by that. When they started kicking off and being a nuisance to other people, that was the smoke alarm going off. So I think it is still needed. I think there will always be behaviour that isn't criminal, um, so the police can't deal with it, but it's still a problem to other people that they shouldn't have to put up with. Um, So yeah, I I think it is necessary and it it, it has changed massively since it started, but I think the way we deal with antisocial behaviour, certainly the way I did, has changed because of austerity, because Whereas, say, a decade ago, we could have referred them to Sure Start or, you know, uh, a youth centre or any one of a number of provisions that, that don't exist anymore. So if you speak to any frontline officer, if you speak to a police officer, any police officer will tell you that right now they are also a mental health worker and a social worker and a youth worker because they have to be because that provision isn't there same if you speak to a nurse who works in accident and emergency people who are coming through their doors a lot of them don't need an emer- urgent medical help but they do need help and the reason they've gone through those doors is because all the other doors have been closed
0: sure yeah it's i, I mean I, I didn't i didn't as i said it didn't, didn't mean your role i thought <laughs> no, not at all. no no no, no i didn't it, take what that I away, did no. you away from the book what i do get from the book is you were very you, you know you've been very important uh, just yourself in your job in in many people's lives um yeah, even in just sort of the first chapter or two you realise uh how many things you've had to deal with um and it's 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 fascinating i i i find your accounts absolutely fascinating as i said you you managed to put humor in there in places that i absolutely admire that you've squeezed humor in um which does make it much easier to read and digest um this is an awful question nick and i apologize in advance it's a, it's a thing you're probably going to get <laughs> asked a lot but what why why did you uh decide to write it and what are you hoping that people take away from your book i'm so sorry <laughs> no 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 fine that's absolutely fine um there's,
3: there's, I mean, reasons for wanting to do it. Part of it was I, um, I wasn't seeing the kind of stories I was, I was experiencing in the job. I wasn't seeing it on television, in drama, in the news, in newspapers. I wasn't seeing that. I was seeing, and social media as well. I just think nuance has died, a loss over recent years. So you weren't seeing that life is more complicated. It's not about. Chavs and hoodies and doll scroungers and junkies and and all the things that you see. Every every person's got a story to tell and and if you actually heard it, you'd maybe understand why they are behaving the way they are. So so that was a motivation. Honestly, another motivation was, you know, I I found myself, I think it was October, freezing cold, stood in a, a stairwell in a block of flats taking photographs of human feces. And that's part of the job because there was a rough sleeper in the in the block, and I partly just thought I might want to do a different job to this. This might not be the job for me <laughs> to much longer. Um, so yeah, so that was another motivation. I'd always I've always written some capacity, you know, in bits and bobs here and there, but I just felt this was something I could write from a from a point of experience at the very least. So those are I think the motivations. In terms of what do I want from the book, uh, I honestly uh, I, w- I hope people find it funny because most of the writing I've done has been sort of comedy or funny based in, in, in some capacity, so that, that's my, that's my sort of register, if you like, of, of, of when I write so that that's a big thing, but also again, it's about telling those stories and, and if I always say if somebody reads the book and then You know, the next day or the next week or the next month, they see a newspaper headline that is that kind of very broad brushstroke sort of labelling of people. If people have read the book and then read that headline and think, well, now I'm gone, it might be a bit more complicated than that, then that would be brilliant that's job done.
0: Yeah, I I mean, I I think you've done a fantastic job and I think you managed to balance, uh, as I said, humour and Um, And the the need for for social welfare and your your incredible experiences that you've had doing it uh, beautifully. I I really enjoyed uh, reading what I have done so far. Um, I'm also amazed that 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 sort of stairwell incident of taking pictures of human feces was was your breaking point because there are so many points already in the book where I'm going, how has he not left? (laughs) This would have been it for me.
3: <laughs> it's weird. Everyone has their own little breaking points currently, but um, yeah,
0: it's it's incredibly admirable that that you did it for for so long, and I absolutely am uh, in awe of it. Um Nick, thank you so much for 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 having a chat with me today. Um, I, I just the last question which I, well, I ask all the guests on this podcast, and um, which is simply that, uh, apart from yourself, um, I just wondered if you could recommend to the listeners who your go-to authors, journalists or campaigns um, are that you would recommend that people check out? And whether it's for sort of politics or social issues or or just in current times, escapism and comedy, who are your, your favourite people?
3: Uh, comedy and escapism, P.G. Woodhouse, since since a teenager, I always said, you know, if I could write one sentence as good as he writes, then I think I'll have achieved something. Um <laughs> So he's absolutely my escapist, you know, the world of PG Bordells, nothing nothing really bad ever happens, you know, a cow creamer goes missing or an engagement's <laughs> cancelled, you know. So it's it's always pleasurable to, to watch. Uh in terms of politics journalism recently, I think uh Nezri Malik is a superb writer. She, she writes very well on politics, on on media and and on race. She's she's fantastic. Um there's uh, an American writer, Linda Torado, who again writes brilliantly on politics and on poverty as well. She, she's written some fantastic stuff. Um, so those would be the two, two guys off the top of my head that I would, I would say in terms of sort of current stuff to be able to, to, to look out for.
0: Thank you tons to Nick for being up for a chat and to Clara at Penguin Random House for helping to organise it. Um, you can find Nick on Twitter at Nick underscore Pettigrew and his book Antisocial is now available at all of those many, many places you can buy books from. But why not pick a small independent bookshop or book site rather than, say, Amazon? And while he won't notice in his bank account, somewhere Lex Luthor with a vitamin deficiency, Jeff Bezos, will get a sudden feeling of uncertainty and hopefully it will ruin his day. Uh, but really, do grab Nick's book. Uh, I've properly, properly enjoyed it. It is a fantastic read. Antisocial, do go and grab that um, obviously, this podcast is now having a wee break, but who would you like me to talk to when it returns? What guests are you keen to hear from? What political subjects haven't I interviewed someone about or should I do again? Get on the blower and drop me a line. Or rather, do it on more modern technology that doesn't have as good slang names as telephones used to. Blower's brilliant, isn't it? Like, nothing beats blower. Get in touch via the at angry key basher page. That's my... That's my sl- slang for Twitter. Does that work? Doesn't really work. Or the Partly Political Broadcast Group on Inane Posting. That's the Facebook page. Or use the contact page on Lonely Internet Memory Stealer, aka the Partly Political Broadcast K-E-K site that doesn't get many hits. Or send an emotionless, hurried word spasm, aka an email, to Partly Political Broadcast at gmail.com. Or you could just use the blower, because that's clearly the best slang, but my landline's been defunct since last April. So you'd probably leave a message after an automated voice asks you to, and I'd never ever hear it, and it would stack up against the billions of spam calls voicemails of frustrated robots trying to sell accident insurance that will one day be received by aliens tracing sound waves back to the Earth, and your guest request will be the one that tips them over the edge before they destroy our planet with a laser. As always, it's probably just best to emotionless hurried word spasm, isn't it? Hmm. And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. And in fact, this run of podcasts for now, it be a summer break. Stick a fork in me, for I am done. But of course, you'll be needing one of those parpal bro hot politics gossip facts to get you through your staycations or Spanish return quarantines. And this week... As Boris Johnson has now been Prime Minister for a full year, sorry, sorry, one second. Sorry, has he been PM for a full year, sorry, which political figure has had a more useless first term as leader? No, it wasn't 20th US President James Garfield, whose first year as leader uh, included him being shot four months into his leadership, then spending three months with doctors trying to find the bullet, and Alexander Graham Bell made a special metal detector just to find it, but they never did, and he died. I bet even on his deathbed, though, that he could say person, woman, man, camera, TV, without it up. Nor is it King Umberto II of Italy, who managed to become king just 34 days before Italy decided it wanted to abolish the monarchy. We've got a prince that is almost certainly a pedo and gets excited about Pizza Express, yet we've kept our royals, so wow, Umberto must have been super shit. No, it's quite hard to say which political leader has had the most useless first term because it's either Trump or Johnson and I think the former telling 1,999 lies in 2017 is actually sort of productive, even if not in terms of societal progress but 1,999 lies is a fair amount of writing work that I doubt Boris Johnson would have even bothered doing unless it was commissioned by the Telegraph He definitely wouldn't have tweeted them while on the toilet He's far too busy doing lines in there Sorry, probably doing lines, allegedly. Look, all I'm saying is we're living in the stupidest age. And that is the last pop Ol Bro Hot Goss fact before the summer. If you enjoyed that or hated it, it doesn't really matter as you can ignore this podcast for at least four weeks. Lucky you. Cheers, me dears, to Acast, my brother, last sceptic, Cat Day and Katie Coxall. This will be back in the autumn when Grant Shapps cotton's on that he keeps getting chosen to do all the diplomatic abroad trips to places on the red list, meaning that he hasn't made it to work since July thanks to all the quarantines. And he gets really upset when Dominic Raab tries to insist the hooray no Grant Shapps party banner behind him is about a completely different one. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by No Spain, No Gain, a new holiday service that will fly you and your family around the coast of the Mediterranean country before circling around and flying you straight home again. No need for quarantine because you haven't breathed in a drop of that coronary air. See all the beaches, but from really high up, so you can definitely find a spot that you can't sit in. Eat airplane food, but there might be a choice of two sandwiches. Swim. Actually, you can't swim. You'll be on a plane. I mean, unless something goes really wrong, which it might. No Spain, no gain. For all the fun of holiday without any of the fun of a holiday. (laughs)